Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church, now with readers in over 180 countries. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Taking Sides, Reversals, and is for Sunday, December 11th, 2005, the third Sunday in Advent. Last night on television, I watched Norm Carroll speak to Palo Alto's Human Relations Committee. He urged them to advise our city council members to stop using the word homeless when referring to people like himself. Carroll objects to that word, much as an ethnic minority resents a racial slur. He prefers the word unhoused, which accurately describes his lack of a structure whereas homeless implies that he is an outsider without a place. Carroll definitely considers Palo Alto his place or his home, even though he lacks a house. In fact, he's a frequent speaker at our city council meetings and an activist who helps the city's unhoused people. Just the night before, on C-SPAN, I watched a Senate hearing where senior executives from ExxonMobil, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, British Petroleum, and Royal Dutch Shell defended their record-breaking $33 billion in quarterly profits at a time of sky-high gas prices. Just a few weeks ago, you might remember, Exxon reported a quarterly profit of $9.9 billion, the largest in U.S. corporate history. Helping the homeless and parsing corporate profits are complex issues. I can't pretend to know very much about either. And I do know that people with good intentions take widely divergent positions on how we should respond to poor people and rich corporations. But whether one should engage these matters is, for the Christian, beyond dispute. As I read the scriptures for this week, God looks and feels biased. He seems to take sides and not just about wealth. These biblical texts are so uncompromising that it is tempting to spiritualize them in some way in order to soften them. Instead, I think we do better to take them at face value as a declaration that the advent of God's kingdom subverts our ordinary ways of doing political and socioeconomic business. In Luke's Gospel, the pregnant teenager Mary, the mother of Jesus, moves from the deeply personal to the explicitly political in her famous Magnificat, which received its name from the first word in the Latin text, which means magnify. My soul magnifies the Lord, said Mary. God, Mary exclaims, quote, has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The mighty one has done great things for me. End quote. This peasant girl, who a few months later would bear the Son of God, then praises God the Mighty One because he has, quote, brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent away the rich empty-handed. Liberal and conservative Christians alike have curried political favor through the ages and fawned over the rich. But every once in a while, someone speaks truth to power after the fashion of Mary. 
Her Magnificat reminds me of the famous humiliation of Emperor Theodosius the Great, the last emperor of the undivided empire, by Bishop Ambrose of Milan. After Theodosius slaughtered 7,000 people in Thessalonica, quote, most unjustly and tyrannically, end quote, as Theodore put it, Ambrose physically prevented him from entering his church. The Bishop Theodora recorded this drama in his book Ecclesiastical History. Quote, you must not be dazzled by the splendor of the purple that you wear, end quote thundered Ambrose to Theodosius. How could you lift in prayer hands which are stained with the blood of such an unjust massacre? Go away and do not add to your guilt by committing a second crime." Quote. To his credit, according to Theodosius, uh, according to Theodoret, Theodosius, quote, submitted to the rebuke and with many tears and groans returned to his palace. Ambrose later restored him after 30 days of public penance. A few pages later, in the second reading for this week, Luke records the first public words spoken by Jesus. He expands the purview of God's biases beyond wealth and political power. After his temptation in the desert, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. One Sabbath, he entered a synagogue in Nazareth where he had grown up, and when given an invitation to speak, he unrolled a scroll and read from the poetry of Isaiah for this week. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. When Jesus finished, writes Luke, he rolled up the scroll, handed it to the attendant, and sat down. With the eyes of everyone in the synagogue fastened on him, Jesus then dropped a bombshell when he said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, his entire life, death, and resurrection were given to fulfill these ancient words of Isaiah. While Ambrose ministered in Italy, St. Basil the Great served as Bishop of Caesarea in central Turkey. And like Ambrose, he too spoke truth to power after the fashion of the teenage Mary. In his case, it was to the powerful Emperor Valens who tried to intimidate him. In the year 372, Valens sent his proxy a man named Modestus, to Caesarea, where he summoned the frail but fiery Basil. Basil dumbfounded Valens with his boldness in a famous incident recorded in his biography. When Modestus threatened Basil with confiscation, exile, torture, and death, 
Basil stood firm. Modestus remarked that no one had ever spoken to him so rashly, to which Basil replied, Perhaps you have never met a bishop before. One of ten children born into a wealthy family, Basil experienced a crisis of faith provoked by his sister Macrina, who challenged Basil about his worldly ambition. She said he was puffed up beyond measure with the pride of oratory. Basil relates how he, quote, then read the gospel, and I saw there that a great means of reaching perfection was the selling of one's goods, the sharing of them with the poor, the giving up of all care for this life, and the refusal to allow the soul to be turned by any sympathy towards things of earth. Basil distinguished himself as a pastor, theologian, writer, and administrator, but many people remember him most for his outspoken advocacy of the oppressed, the brokenhearted, and those burdened with what Isaiah called a spirit of despair. Basil excommunicated people who owned houses of prostitution. He objected to usury and unjust taxes. During a famine in the years 367 and 368, he sold his family inheritance to feed the starving. Basil built hospitals to care for the sick. He built the Xenodokion, or houses for strangers, and the Patokion, or places for the poor. These institutions became so effective that the pagan emperor, who also happened to be a former classmate of Basil, Julian the Apostate modeled his own welfare efforts after these Christian ones. Basil also did menial work in the kitchens and objected to any distinctions between Jew and Christian, rich and poor. Do we not all have the same digestive system, he asked. In his scathing series of sermons called Against the Rich, Basil blasted people who hoarded wealth while the poor starved, who adorned their horses with luxurious finery while their neighbors wore tattered rags, and who let corn rot in their granaries and be eaten by rats rather than use it to help the poor. Said Basil, what kind of punishment do you think is deserved by a person who passes the hungry without even giving them a sign? Mary and Jesus, Ambrose and Basil, each in their own way lived and spoke about the biases of God's heart. They raised their voices in prophetic protests, but beyond that they extended compassionate care on behalf of the weak and the marginal. In doing so, they signaled the advent of God's kingdom in a stark reversal of the ordinary ways of the world. And now for further reflection. Perhaps you might like to look at the book by Yaroslav Pelikan called Mary Through the Centuries, Her Place in the History of Culture, 1998. Secondly, in what sense, if at all, does God favor the poor and oppose the rich? And thirdly, can you recall an instance when a spiritual leader rebuked a powerful person like Ambrose and Basil did in their own day?
My book review this week is by a book by Jonathan Hill, What Has Christianity Ever Done for Us? Downers Grove, InterVarsity Press, 2005, 192 pages. Christianity is the largest religion in the world and perhaps the most globally indigenous, having spread most everywhere on earth. For many people in our post-Christian world, that global reach has become synonymous with economic exploitation, cultural imperialism, military domination, and reactionary intolerance. Think of Cortez in Central America, the medieval crusades, slave traders in the Congo, or witch hunts in Boston. What has gone unnoticed and unspoken, though, is how broadly and deeply Christianity has shaped the modern world for good. Thus, Jonathan Hill's book is a refreshing exception. He does not ignore or soft-pedal the wrongs Christians have done, and he even enfolds those dark episodes into his narrative. But in this book, he highlights the debt we all owe for the positive heritage of Christianity. Almost any realm of human endeavor you might contemplate has in some way been shaped for good by Christianity. Reading and writing, art and architecture, education and literacy, music and politics, the rule of law, and care for the poor. Examples and connections abound. The incarnation in which Christians believe that God became a man implies the radical notion that human history is important. Belief in the image of God signals that every person bears a sacred identity that cannot be earned or forfeited. The doctrine of creation, for example, signals the rational intelligibility of the world upon which scientific inquiry is based. Hill considers all these areas and more which means that by necessity his work is quite general. A half a page on Milton or Dostoevsky, for example, informs you only so well. Still, in our age of specialized expertise, I appreciated his attempt at the big picture in the grand sweep. American readers might not warm to Hill's British idiom, and at times his attempts to inject humor into his casual style come off as strained and distracting. But Hill mines the Christian heritage from the early church mothers and fathers down through Tolkien, the Irish rock group U2, and black American blues. Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestant traditions all get their due. He introduces you to Christian contributions from Africa, South Africa, Japan, and beyond. This hardback book is handsomely bound and includes nearly a hundred gorgeous color plates of icons, architecture, portraiture, and photography. Thanks to Jonathan Hill for his highlighting the debt we owe for the positive heritage of Christianity. My film review this week is of a film called Born into Brothels, 2004. In 1998, the photojournalist Zaina Brisky moved to a red-light district in Calcutta to document the lives of prostitutes. 
After three years, she discovered that the children born into these brothels were fascinated by her camera. Knowing that these kids were destined to a life of sex slavery, drugs, and violence, one day she brought the kids ten point-and-shoot cameras and formed a workshop to help them discover the beauty of their own lives through the liberating power of art. This film won the 2005 Academy Award for Best Documentary and follows Brisky's class of nine kids that she gathered. Through dogged perseverance, she was able to get several of the kids into private boarding schools and even one of them to a major American university. Later, she started a foundation called Kids with Cameras that now works in Calcutta, Haiti, Cairo, and Jerusalem. There's also a book of children's photography called Born into Brothels, photographs by the children of Calcutta. Much like the film City of God, shot in the slums of Rio de Janeiro, and promises about Palestinian and Israeli kids, Born into Brothels reminds us how much adults have to learn from these children. And finally, for poetry this week, we post the poem Annunciation about the visit of, angel, of the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary by John Donne. Salvation to all that will is nigh. That all, which always is all everywhere, which cannot sin, and yet all sins must bear, which cannot die, yet cannot choose but die, Lo, faithful virgin, yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb. And though he there can take no sin, nor thou give, yet he will wear, taken from thence, flesh, which death's force may try. Ere by the spheres time was created, thou wast in his mind, who is thy son and brother. Whom thou conceivest, conceived. Yea, thou art now thy maker's maker, and thy father's mother. Thou hast light in dark, and shut'st in little room, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday. December 11th. And please join us every Monday for a new essay based upon the biblical lectionary, a book note, a film review, and a poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.